When you're young, you dream of getting so good at the thing you love that you'll be able to do it professionally. Maybe that dream sticks with you as a young adult and you work really hard at the thing for years. And then one day you wake up in a cold sweat and you realize I can't play golf anymore. This week on Interstates, we have not one, but two people who come really close to being professionals in very competitive fields and then hook left. One's packing boxes in a warehouse and the other fell back on um, stand-up comedy because, you know, that's a safe bet. Our first story comes from producer Avi Forrest. What's the easiest way to be a comedian? Is it practicing your jokes? Is it honing your impressions? Actually, it's professional golf. Or at least, that's how comedian Diana Hong did it. The year is around 2000, and Diana is 12. Her dad owns a video store. It's like kind of like a blockbuster. I don't know if blockbuster had porn sections, but my my <laughs> dad's stores had porn sections. It's an archaic time. Hulu, Disney Plus have yet to exist, and people must venture out into the cruel whims of nature to get their movies. The films themselves are encoded onto these inscrutable bricks of black plastic and these mysterious gleaming discs. As a journalist born in 2002, I can really only speculate on the arcane inner workings of these artifacts. Anyway, Diana's father owned a video store that dealt in things like um, VHS tapes and DVDs. Shelves of things like action, romance, Steven Spielberg classics. For a long time, I thought I wanted to be Steven Spielberg because I was like the only director I knew. Horror movies, drama, and porn? Like, I remember, like, reading a newspaper where, like, my, like, they were talking about how people were protesting my dad's store because of the porn section. And I remember being like, oh, my God, like, are we going to, like, like, what are we going to do? Like, people are so mad. Are we going to close the section down? And my dad's like, it's our biggest moneymaker. We're not doing anything. However, things were not always exciting in this wonderland of alchemy and analog. The employees of her father's store would often get bored. And for that, they had set up a television to watch when business was slow. But Diana wanted to watch things, too. And nothing boring. Like, I would always play a goofy movie. That was my favorite movie. It's funny how much of Diana's life was changed in that video store. We talk about how this or that show changed our lives. But what we need to understand here is that when I say that television changed Diana's life... I mean it. One day, an employee of Diana's father was using the store's TV for something just awful. Instead of, like, watching movies, he would watch golf. And, like, I'm like, I want to watch a movie, so I would, like, talk shit. The employee did not tell Diana to buzz off or hit the bricks or whatsapp, whatever phrases they used in this period. Instead, he told Diana that before she made fun of the high-octane incendiary deathmatch that was 
golf. She should try it herself first. Have you ever played golf before? No, I can't say that I have. I can see why. I mean, I, it's not, it's a very old, culture-wise, it's not the best. I'm going to be very frank about that. It's not the best. But um, there is something to, like, when you hit your first pure golf shot, it is, it's kind of like getting that first laugh. Like, you're just, it's addicting, and you're just, like, chasing that high again. And I felt like... As a kid, I was like, oh, I like this. And here's the thing. She wasn't half bad. So at first it was me loving it. And then I think my parents saw it as an opportunity for this to be career and make money. Soon she started golf lessons. Not half bad became decent. Decent became good. Good turned to great when Diana received a golf scholarship to Washington State University. The pursuit was settled. She had her focus on golfing greatness, a powerful swing sending her future out onto the course, this extended golfing metaphor getting more and more convoluted as the ball of Diana's future rolled towards the verdant green of a college scholarship. It was right there. All Diana had to do was nudge it in. Diana got the scholarship. She went to college. But she felt out of place. Like, not a lot of diversity, like, very white, very, like, you know, Christian type of thing, right? And she slowly realized that maybe college wasn't the right move. Then Diana's father made a suggestion. Drop out. Specifically, drop out and focus on professional golf. And she agreed. So, Diana dropped out and headed home to California. Unfortunately, Diana and her father were not on the same page. His idea was, like, to be successful, you need to wake up at, like, 4 a.m., start practicing at 5, and then go work. Like, it was like, eat, sleep, golf. That's it. He wanted more from Diana. More Dedication, early mornings, nose to the green, no social life. And I was like, I also want to be a person. Diana wanted to compete, yes. But she also wanted friends, a social life, time to herself. Just even a little room to rest. When Diana returned to her father, she also came home to an argument. One of her biggest. Diana's father essentially told her she was a failure, that if she didn't work enough, she would amount to nothing. There was screaming, a lot of screaming. Then Diana had enough. I was like, well, I just don't want to be here anymore. She left her parents' house and her screaming father and thought about where to go next. But where could she go next? She wasn't in college. Her father was furious with her. She could chase after golf, I guess. She was caught in a great unknown in limbo. So she decided to go back to something she did know. Back to college. She heard about a golf scholarship through her swing coach to the University of San Francisco. And before she knew it, she was back in college golf. But here's the thing. The University of San Francisco was another opportunity for Diana to finish school. 
but it was more than that. With golf, it's like a very lonely solitude sport. So like, I it's not like dating or like any sexual identity was even at the forefront of my mind. But I think when I started going to college and realizing like, oh, everyone is trying to hook up with frat guys. It's not really my cup of tea. But then I kept being like, oh, it's because I'm golfing. Diana mentioned earlier that Washington State was just not a good place for her. College life was part of the reason. She also mentioned that the school wasn't particularly progressive. When Diana was 18, she knew that she was gay. Though she did have some queer friends to rely on for support and comfort, Washington State was not progressive at all. But it was just like a long journey. And it was like primarily, I think, being in San Francisco and being like, oh, yeah, like this is it. I subleased from someone or sublet a room and they had a gay roommate and then a straight male roommate. And then I was sharing a room with another female. We just met because we couldn't afford the rent on our own. I ended up coming out to the straight guy (laughs) before the gay guy. So how long did it take you to come out to your parents? I didn't come out to my parents till when I started comedy. Because the person I was dating when I was golfing, uh, so like right before I started comedy, I came out to them. But like not really came out. I was like hanging out with this girl before I moved to Florida, right? And they're like kind of like, you're hanging out with this. You're like never home, all of this. And then finally, um, what happened was the person I was dating was very like, I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to continue this if you're going to be in the closet. So basically kind of like guilted me into coming out. And so I just told my mom and my mom was like, okay, I'll tell your dad. And my dad and I never talked about it. When I used to do stand-up, I would write it out word for word. And I would print that out. Like I wouldn't, now I just jot notes, like a couple words I'll know what I'm talking about. But like before it was like word for word. And uh, my parents found it in my room they saw that and was like well you're advertising being gay i had stuff about me being gay and they hated that i was like out about it and so um that's when it kind of like i told them about the dating thing and they're like okay whatever it's kind of like keep it quiet type of thing like we won't really talk about it and then they found out i said i was gay on stage and then they like lost their shit I mean, I, I also have a bit about this, but yeah, when my mom and I like really addressed the gay thing, this was like, um, she was like, like mar- gay marriage was still a topic because now it's federally legal, right? Yeah. So like this is before, way before that, obviously, but um, she was like, you know, gay people aren't human, so you don't deserve human rights. Like it, Like she did not like the gay thing at all. Because Koreans, I mean, you want to know this now because we're so, like, popular and BTS looks very gay, um, but very homophobic country, like, just culture in general. They're getting better, um, but, like, 10 years ago, 15 years, like, even five years ago, very homophobic. After Diana graduates in California, the time comes to get back to the green. Professionally. She tried to start in Arizona, but sickness and surgery stopped her from going very far. Maybe it was an omen. Eventually, Diana found herself eyeing Florida as a potential start to her golfing career. This is where the rest of her life begins, where she starts her new career as a professional golfer. Soon she'll be deployed off like a fresh soldier 
to fight for a future she definitely, absolutely wants. Yes, it's Gulf-ing and not the Gulf War, but the implications feel oddly similar. There's just one question left. What will it cost? In the face of all of this, Diana decided to do a few things before she went to Florida, before her life existed solely on the green, mulling over which putter to use. This opportunity came where I was like, I'm never seeing these people again. I'm going to, like, commit my life to this. So I was like, let me do an open mic. Specifically, she wanted to try performing in a comedy club. And so I did an open mic. I loved it. I was very drunk, probably a little blacked out. So, But overall, I loved it. This was Diana's first time on stage. But the real start of her comedy career happens much later. But we'll get to it. Anyway, for now, the awful state of Florida and Diana. Hit a point in my life where I was, in my career there, that I was just like, I think if I commit to this fully, I can be a top player, but I don't know if I want to do the work. Like, the work wasn't fun. It was time, it seemed. Time for golf, time to perfect that perfect swing. Time to walk hole to hole to hole over and over and over again. Time to win the games, get the money, make mom and dad happy. But when I was growing up, people, my friend, like my best friend's brother didn't know my name. He just knew me as the golfer. He was like, hey, I saw your friend, the golfer. Like everyone just knew me as the golfer. So to like, I think that was the hardest part of like realizing like the falling out of love thing was also being like, oh shit, I don't have an identity anymore. Maybe you'll be what you always were what you were destined to be, who you needed to be. Maybe you're not Diana. Maybe you never were. You're not gay or straight. You're not interested in comedy. You're not silly or imaginative or capable of anything else besides wrapping your hands around a golf club and sending that ball as far away as you can before you have to go find it again and again and again. I used to be a long hitter. Like, I used to hit it, like, 270 on average, like, if I was hitting it well. Um, But for whatever reason, I started hitting this, like, mental blog or something started happening where I couldn't even hit my driver 180 yards. And that's when I was, like, trying to figure out that puzzle piece. Because before, I would, like, have fun, like, trying to, like, analyze the swing and figure it out and, like, what do different... How does the ball react to different shots and, like, all of this, right? But at that moment, because I was, like, playing for money and, like, okay, is this going to help? Like, am I going to be able to eat? Like, am I... Like, is this worth it? Like, all of this stuff, right? It became just, like, oh, this is so stressful, Maybe you were, are, and will always be the golfer. If if I couldn't figure out, if I wasn't perfect or if I couldn't figure things out, it became, felt like the end of the world. Every single day I would wake up and it would just be like, everything sucks. Like it just felt so dark. And I felt like that's kind of where I was like, I can't live like this. Diana spent about three months in Florida before she realized that she didn't want to be there. 
When she wasn't working two jobs, she was spending between four and eight hours a day golfing. The weather was hot, and Diana was miserable. Diana realized that she couldn't golf for the rest of her life. She realized that she needed to get out, even if she had no idea what she was going to do next. For like 13 years, I only knew one thing. And then I woke up one day and was just like, nah. Like you hear about people that like after their wedding day or something, they'll get like wake up in a cold sweat and be like, I can't do this. That's what happened. Like I just woke up in a panic attack and I was like, I can't play golf anymore. Do you know how a grenade works? Once you pull the pin, a lever on top of the grenade pops off, which ignites a small spark on the fuse. At the end of the fuse is a small explosive. When that explodes, so does the rest of the grenade. All in all, after removing the pen, you have about four seconds. Because um, I was like, either I'm going to end it all or I need to get help. The one thing Diana thought was holding her life together was gone. Golf was gone. And uh, so when I made the decision to not play, I got so depressed, I actually checked myself into a psych ward. And like, I actually got booked for a show a couple months later. And I was like, I don't want to flake on my first show. Diana decided that she needed to get help. She was worried about herself but was also determined to perform that comedy show. So she entered the psych ward. Apparently it was the four seasons of psych wards in Sacramento. <laughs> and I was like, y'all have never been to a four seasons. No doors, everything's a curtain. Um, uh, nothing was padded. So like, it wasn't like high security, like psych ward. It wasn't padded. I mean, there's beds, there's like a community room. Um, you have to be monitored to use a pencil, like anything sharp. Um, it was just like a hallway, and it was just a bunch of us uh, just hanging out. And uh, I think everyone really wanted a cigarette. Like, that was pretty much the experience. There, there was no golfing. No constant moving back and forth. A break from the constant torsion of the last few months. Finally, a place to breathe slow down, and stop. But that's not the end of Diana's story. She was having trouble mentally, and perhaps spiritually. She was down, below down, in the gritty bedrock under what everyone thinks is down, but not out. On a selfish level, I just don't want to feel like I'm alone. On, like, a more, like, I guess... I don't know if the word will be, like, altruistic, but, like, for, like, an outward level, like, that would be, like, I just, I know life sucks. And I know from my experience, when you're laughing, you don't have time to think about how life sucks. And to be able to provide that for other people is, to me, super dope. Even after all of that, after things that usually break people's spirits like twigs, Diana knew something about herself. A small, unseen truth. Something you would find beaten down and crumpled up in that tiny front pocket of your jeans. 
Diana was funny. After everything she'd been through, she was still focused on getting better and performing comedy. She had jokes to tell and a mic waiting for her. And damn it, she wasn't going to let her audience down. After a week, she left the psych ward. And though there are plenty of other tales along the way, this is how Diana Hong started her comedy career. You split up with your partner for a week, you go into the psych ward, and then you do your first stand-up set. Is that Yeah. Damn, when you say it like that, that's a lot. So, after all of that, where is Diana today? Well, Diana has a new partner. They've been together for around eight years. She's beautiful. She's the most kind, amazing human. I'm very, very lucky. She loves dinosaurs. Things are better with her family. Yeah, I mean, my mom and I are a lot better because my dad passed away a couple years ago. Um, I never really got to talk to him as much. Um, But my mom and I are a lot better. Like, she loves my partner. And I have, like, a whole thing in my stand-up about it. And she's playing a little golf again. I'm taking a break, but I only started playing golf to see if I can qualify for the Open for this documentary that we're doing. Life is better. But deep down, Diana is still afraid of some things. Uh, What are you afraid of most as a comedian? I am afraid of... I think... I'm afraid of, like the same thing happening with what happened with golf. Then I'm going to wake up one day and decide I don't want to do this anymore. That's my biggest fear. Because I think to me that would say I would have failed twice. And it's kind of embarrassing once you tell everybody you're doing something. And then I think, yeah, and then just kind of having to restart my life and figure that. I think that's that's my biggest fear is waking up and being like, I don't want to do this. Diana is a brilliant comedian. And even if she stops doing comedy, she's still just a really cool, tough person. So, after several misplaced swings at a future lying on some uncertain green, Diana swung for the fences, bounced off several stop signs, moving cars, and fragile windows, and sunk it in on stage with a microphone telling jokes. That story was produced by Avi Forrest. Wait, wait. Diana's soul was on the green when comedy swung its long, silly arms further and faster than Diana could ever comprehend, resulting in many new discoveries deep within her psyche, relinquishing... Four interstates, that was... Wait, wait, no, no, I got it. Diana's putter that represented her dedication to golf, slowly turned into a microphone, which represents comedy. And the once quiet spectators okay, now laughing okay, at her Abby, new... F- okay, okay, thanks. I think we get it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, that, that was Avi Forrest for WFIU's Interstates. We're going to take a break now. Interstates, Alex Chambers. This week's episode is Don't Go Pro. And we're listening to two stories about swerving away from competitive professional careers. We heard from Diana Hong, who became a comedian by way of professional golf. And I don't know, I feel like the fact that Diana's a stand-up comic now kind of undermines the thesis of the show. Becoming a stand-up comic still sounds like achieving some kind of dream. This next story, though, 
I don't think you have to worry about the protagonist landing somewhere dreamy. At least, not on the surface. Jack Canfield spent years training to be a professional singer. He went through a graduate program in vocal performance at a top conservatory at the Jacobs School of Music here at Indiana University. Then last summer, he was at Tanglewood. That's the summer home of the Boston Symphony Orchestra in western Massachusetts, also very prestigious. And he was invited to open their summer season as a soloist in the first piece in the first concert. It was a big moment for his career, and he did really well. That was a year ago. And at this point, you might be wondering, what's he done since then? To what new heights did Tanglewood launch him? Well, I am happy to tell you, he is now working in a warehouse, packing boxes in Utah. He's loving it. Life's good, man. I get off at four. I can go ski every weekend, and I get three weeks paid vacation as a box packer. Jack's been on interstates before. He's the one who drove his friend Sagan to the federal prison in Terre Haute, where Sagan was a spiritual advisor to a man who was being executed. When I released the episode last year, I announced that Jack was making his solo debut with the Boston Symphony in July. I ran the episode again this year, and I asked Jack for an update on his career. Figured he was singing with an opera company somewhere. That's when he told me about his warehouse job. I wanted to see if he was really as happy as he sounded over email, so I called him up. He was on his lunch break when we talked, and I think his feelings were mixed. I kind of want to let you finish eating before I really start asking you questions. Maybe it'll, like, it'll, like, really set the scene. Like, this is a sandwich of failure or something, you know? Like, previously, I never had to eat sandwiches on my work lunch breaks. I let him finish his lunch, and then we got into it. When we first talked, Jack had a job with Opera Idaho in Boise. It wasn't a long-term position. The pay was almost non-existent, and his housing situations were very interesting, as he put it. But that's like an entire other podcast. He was auditioning everywhere he could find, and he got into the fellowship program at Tanglewood. It was just for the summer, but it was good news, not only because he might get to sing with the Boston Symphony. He'd spend the summer with other talented younger musicians. He'd get vocal coaching from some of the greats, Don Upshaw and especially Stephanie Blythe. He'd actually gotten waitlisted for Tanglewood, but then he got a call out of the blue inviting him to come out. And to top it off, they said, how would you like to perform with the BSO? They would almost always contract that out. I don't know why they decided to give it to a fellow. I think I was the only fellow that summer that performed with the Boston Symphony Orchestra as a soloist. And, you know, it's not that I was better qualified. If anything, I was probably one of the least qualified people to be doing that, but... It just so happened that that's what they they wanted to do. And I was one of two baritones there that summer. And I had a more of the voice type that that piece needed. The piece was Leonard Bernstein's opening prayer. It's only about five minutes long. The orchestra plays most of it and the baritone comes in at the end. The performance was being conducted by Andres Nelsons, the music director of the Boston Symphony, among the top conductors in the world. It was on the main stage at Tanglewood, the Kusevitsky Music Shed. The shed is open to the lawns at Tanglewood. So between the indoor seating and the lawns, there would be about 9,000 people listening. Were you nervous? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I was very nervous. Of course he was nervous. But it's a little more complicated than that. This is the first clue as to why Jack is now happily packing boxes. I think what was so frustrating and what has been really frustrating about my 
career, which I don't, I haven't really had one to speak of, but my journey as a singer, which is that like, you know, I feel like I do something in the practice room or whatever, and it's at a really high level and I feel really great about what I'm doing. Like, it sounds good even to his very critical ear. Keep in mind, Jack went to a lot of school for this. If there's one thing school tends to do well, it's teaching you to be critical of yourself. Even so, Jack had plenty of moments in the practice room when he sounded good. Then, as soon as he got in front of someone, his voice would change. It wouldn't function the same way. Even when he didn't feel nervous, even when he felt excited to be there. My voice wouldn't operate. It was not free. It was almost like my body was like, I don't want to do this. Our bodies do tell us things our minds aren't ready to admit. And this is all before Jack's realization. The first rehearsal for his solo with the symphony was okay. Jack was nervous, but also excited. That rehearsal went fine. He was a little timid, but it was fine. The second rehearsal went really well. I was like, man, I feel like I represented myself well. I felt great about it. I was in it. And so I felt great going into the night of it's always very bad luck to have a great vinyl dress. And it's, it's frustrating because it's, it's been like, that has been a consistent thing across my experiences as a performer, but you're really good at dress rehearsals. <laughs> it's unfortunately <laughs> that not all the time. Sometimes it's worked out for the better. Superstition aside, it seemed like it was going to be okay. Jack reminded himself the Boston Symphony wouldn't invite someone to sing with them who couldn't hack it. Plus, he didn't even have to sing for very long. This is 90 seconds of singing, and it's not particularly hard singing. There is one, I will say this, the very last note is very hard and very exposed and very scary. So that's the drama, is that there's like 90 seconds of not challenging singing. And then the very last thing is like, like walking a tightrope. But he'd been trained for this. He'd gotten hours of coaching on those 90 seconds from Stephanie Blythe, who's been singing with the Metropolitan Opera for almost 30 years. Talk about a vote of confidence. Like, she just made me feel like I was a singer, too. Jack said Stephanie Blythe is not known for holding her punches. She's sort of notorious for saying what she thinks sometimes when maybe she shouldn't, but, like, she'd be honest. And so it was really cool to have these people with credentials on my side. And it was this whole team of people for these 90 seconds with the BSO. And there he was, getting ready to perform. He had his own dressing room with a nameplate next to the other stars of the concert. And then the time comes. And Jack's feeling good. Singing well. Not that hard. I can done it 10,000 times. So he heads up to the side of the stage where he'll be going on. He's standing there next to Andres Nelsons, who's conducted hundreds of concerts before. We're getting ready to go on stage, and he's shadow boxing. And I'm like, oh, wait, maybe I'm pretty good. I'm like, maybe I should be a little more nervous. Especially because he's the first person to walk out for the whole summer festival. Like, who's this kid? So he walks out, doing his best to look like he'd done it before. I got the door exit perfectly, but then, like, about halfway, I was like, I shouldn't be here. I, like, totally panicked. It was okay, though. His training kicked in, he'd done it enough times, there was an element of automatic pilot that took over. So there he is. He's listening to the orchestra, then it's time to sing. And that's going well. Then, right before that last note, there's this little pause. Just enough time to panic. But it came out. He nailed it. Everything was good. 
until it was time to bow. No one had walked him through that part of the process. Like, I know there's a bowing situation. I know, like, but I have no idea what to do. And so at first I like bowed and then I almost like hightailed it out of there. And I was like, no, don't do that. But then it's clear that I have overstayed my welcome. And um, <laughs> the people at least who are close to the stage are laughing because Andres Nelson is like, all right, you can leave the stage now. Like, I felt like a total ignoramus, which I was. But anyway, so I walk off stage and just about collapse. It was great, but it was uh, <laughs> stressful. But he'd done it. Seems like he'd be all set, right? Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll get into why Jack did not feel like his singing career was all set. Stick around. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. This week's episode is Don't Go Pro, two stories about people almost becoming professionals in very competitive careers and then swerving off to a different path at the last minute. Right now, we're following Jack Canfield on his career shift from soloing at the Tanglewood Music Center in Western Massachusetts to packing boxes at a warehouse in Utah, where he's much happier. After his performance with the Boston Symphony, Jack had a great summer at Tanglewood. He performed these six art songs by Claude Debussy that he said you could spend your whole life studying. He was getting all this training from great singers. But there was one persistent problem. Whenever it was time to perform, this thing would happen to his voice. Even when he wasn't nervous. Like, when it was time to perform those Debussy songs. He was really well prepared. He was excited to share the music, and his voice just shut off. In the moment, I was like, well, that's interesting, and now it's just a part of the story. And the art songs, still need you still got to sing them and do them justice, and then it's not about how pretty your voice is. I mean, because that is kind of... It is kind of supposed to be how pretty your voice is, isn't it? Yes and no. I think the singer in me is like, well, no, I really don't care how pretty your singing is. You, There needs to be enough facility to where it doesn't take away from the music. And Jack did have that facility, but that's not all it takes. You're not just trying to make the notes sound pretty or right. You want to express something. Classical singing is complex. You're executing this really challenging, specific music. You're thinking about the feeling and the language, which might be at odds with the music for maximum effect. And you're also thinking about how to come off a rest, how to phrase something, knowing it's Debussy and not some other composer. And on top of all of that, you need to be vulnerable. That's the part Jack's voice wasn't letting him do. And that summer is when it really got clear for him. Jack says he had a great summer at Tanglewood, but there was a lot of struggle along the way. And he started to really question whether he wanted to struggle that much in order to feed himself. I'm actually an incredibly lazy person, and I don't want to struggle that much. And struggle's the right word. Like, it's a kind of suffering. That's what was going through his head that summer at Tanglewood. Then the summer ended. He wasn't ready to completely throw the towel in on singing, but he was going to stop looking for work. You know, and for me, my stage of my career, it's not like people are knocking on my door. So I was like, so effectively, I'm just probably not going to sing. He was okay with that. But then someone did knock on his door. A woman from a small opera company in Duluth, Minnesota. They were doing this fairly new opera that involves two singers and a string quartet. It's about a trans woman, Hannah, as she goes through her transition. Jack had already been in the show, playing the role of Hannah before. The company in Duluth had had someone drop out, and they wondered if Jack could do it. 
It was a professional role. She told him how much money they were going to pay him. For me, not making any money, I was like, that's a lot of money. I need to take it. The problem was, it was at the same time as this backpacking trip Jack had been planning for the past year. He couldn't reschedule the trip. It was opera, money, maybe not a lot of money, career, or a 90-mile walk in the woods. I mean, they were offering him money to sing. He took the job, started to make peace with not going on his hike, and got going on the part. He had the score on hand since he'd been in it, and he pulled it out to look at it. He hadn't sung a note since Tanglewood. He found he was having to psych himself up for it. Except he couldn't psych himself up for it. He just couldn't do it. So I pulled a huge no-no in this industry, and I just sent her an email, and I was like, I've been thinking about leaving singing for so long. It's like such a, like, it was this kind of this from the soul sort of thing. I'm so sorry to put you in this spot. I'm sorry to accept your offer only to realize that I need to stop singing. I'm happy to help you find a replacement. He sent off the email. I imagine he was feeling a mix of dread and relief. Dread because, you know, he'd just committed a pretty serious faux pas in his industry. And relief because... You know, he'd just committed a pretty serious faux pas in his industry. And who'd want him now? No more knocks at his door from opera companies in small Midwestern cities. He expected an email, but he got a call. The woman from the opera company had something to say to him. Hey, uh, that was really a great email. Thank you. But uh, can you just do it anyways? (laughs) He's like, we really need somebody to do this. Can you just quit singing after you finish this production? He thought to himself, maybe he should do it. He'd been trying so long to make it work. At least he'd have this on his resume. And, you know, it'd be a way to get started. Whatever industry you're in, you build relationships one by one. And what would he be giving it up for, this last shot at his career? A long walk. A hobby. It was a long walk he'd been planning for a year, and he was excited for this new hobby. It was also going to be challenging, but in a different way. You know, there's something simple about, well, I'm going to walk 90 miles. And the benchmark for success is not dying. Not dying makes the stakes sound pretty high. But his odds were good. And the point is, it didn't really matter how well he did it. It wasn't like trying to hold a beautiful high note with the perfect combination of technique and vulnerability in front of 9,000 people with the Boston Symphony behind you. He just had to walk 90 miles. So Jack went on the walk. He came back way more broke than when he'd started. But in the end, it was the right choice. Because here's the thing. Making it as a professional classical singer is really hard. It's not just that you have to be talented. So Jack's girlfriend, Jenny, has a business called Stage Time. It's a sort of LinkedIn for performing artists. One of the reasons she started it is that most performers, no matter how successful they are, are juggling lots of different things. It's all side hustles. Jack pointed out, that's the business model for the industry. And even then, talent and all that effort don't always lead to success. There's luck, too. At times in our conversation, Jack sounded kind of fatalistic about the whole thing. It's a small industry, and so I know some folks that are they're at the top. Well, but like I, I bump shoulders with them. And, and I tell you what, for the most part, the people who are really at the top were at the top when we were 18. And there wasn't like this struggle. For the people who are really making a career out of it, they put a lot of things together very early. For a long time, Jack had been climbing, trying to secure his footing in the world of classical singing. 
When he soloed with the Boston Symphony, he'd made it to what a lot of us would see as a peak. You clearly got to a pretty incredibly high level. You got to perform with the BSO at Tanglewood. Yeah. It wasn't like they were just being nice. Totally lose perspective. You completely lose perspective because up there I'm thinking I'm a failure. And that's one thing where I was like, man, this is world class. This is like they lay out this six minute bed of just spectacular beauty. And then I come on and just like fart on it. I did my best, but boy, that's like racing the Indy 500 in a Subaru. It was just like, man. But you know, on the other hand, exactly. You're right. Like it was a lifetime experience and I earned it, even though a part of it was just right place, right time. It was a good, a good way in some ways to sort of round it out and say goodbye. Beyond the performance, Jack had a more personal peak, too. Remember the veteran mezzo-soprano with the Metropolitan Opera who doesn't hold back on her opinions and was coaching Jack on that 90-second solo from Leonard Bernstein's opening prayer? Well. I sang it for the first time through for Stephanie Blythe. And it was like, it was quite touching because it really felt like she inferred all of my singing history, my trip around the world listening to indigenous singers, everything. And she was just like, having heard you sing for that long, like, I know you could sing and have a career. And coming from her, who had the biggest of big careers, that almost was enough for me. This person who I felt like really understood singing on, on in a way that I understood as well. To hear that from her was really cool. And she was more interested in you talking about my trip around the world listening to singing. We got to go. We went one day after one of the final dress rehearsals. She um, was listening, and uh, we went and had Burger King together, which was fun. We drove and had Burger King and sat in the parking lot, and then she drove me back to my next rehearsal. If Burger King with Stephanie Blythe doesn't feel like success, then I think you might want to take another look at your priorities. Here's the thing about Jack. Whether the feeling came from inside or outside, he's not sure— but he grew up feeling a lot of pressure to go out and make a difference. He was used to hearing this message that I think a lot of us hear, that he should work hard to achieve his dreams. For a long time, he was trying to do something big. He traveled the world listening to indigenous singing communities. He sat zazen for a week, practicing meditation and learning that a lot of it is about dealing with physical pain. He soloed with the Boston Symphony. Then he moved to Salt Lake City, and got a job packing boxes at a warehouse. I show up to work. People are friendly. The job is very cut and dried. It's hard to mess up. It's not stressful. I get to listen to podcasts while I do it. Time goes by really quickly. It's simple, and that's really nice. He'd been so caught up in feeling like he had to make the world better. And um, I think there's a great relief of just like having a job. The thing about a job, though, is that eventually, hopefully after you've finished your sandwich, your lunch hour is up. I gotta get going. Jack Canfield is a baritone who packs boxes in Salt Lake City. You're not likely to find him performing anytime soon.
one more note about Jack's story. What I found interesting was that he'd come so close to making it in this prestigious, competitive, really elite career, and then left to work in a warehouse. That may have seemed like a fall, but I don't see it that way. I'm actually really interested in people's relationship to work regardless of the quote-unquote status of the job. So, if you work in a job that our society generally doesn't see as skilled or interesting, and you want to tell me about what we're missing, get in touch. You can find a contact form at wfiu.org slash interstates. That was baritone Jose Eduardo Chama in the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra, performing Leonard Bernstein's opening prayer, also known as Benediction, from his Concerto for Orchestra. That performance was conducted by Leonard Bernstein himself. And you've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us or you've got some sound we should hear, you can always let us know at wfiu.org slash interstates. All right, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up, but first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Violet Barron, Aabon Binder, Mark Chilla, Avi Forrest, Luann Johnson, Sam Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. Special thanks this week to Diana Hong and Jack Canfield. All right, time for that found sound. was a neighborhood with what I think are adolescent red-tailed hawks. If you know there's something else, do tell. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks, as always, for listening. Bye.